Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, February 14th. Happy Valentine's Day to you and yours. We are continuing to look at the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae. And today we look at chapter 1, verses 21 through 29. So listen as I read Colossians 1, 21 through 29, reading from the ESV version. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am willing to, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The Great Mystery, Colossians 1, of 21 through 29. Verse 21 through 23, the first part reads, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. What a marvelous thing to find hope like that in, in this dark world that we live in. And how wonderful that God himself undertakes to make this change. God is at work. He is, he is sovereign, and he can and does reconcile people to himself and make a change in their lives. And this, this passage from, from verse 21 on through uh, the end of the chapter is this amazing description of the process of change in us people and human beings. And it traces this change it, in three stages. First of all, there, there is a beginning that involves an inner reversal of attitude, a total change of outlook occurs when we come into contact personally with the Savior. And as Paul states here, that was a time when all of us who, who are now believers or Christians, when we were alienated from God, we did not have any use for God. We did not take him into, into our thinking, into our, into our reasoning, into our reckoning. We did not consider him important. We started and ended each day without giving a thought to him. We went about our own plans. We lived for ourselves and, and we did what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it, never giving a thought to God. Or if we did think of him, we regarded him as merely some remote being, right? Somewhere out there on the horizon, but, but never expecting anything from him. Because we cut him out of our thinking, even though he was sustaining our very life, we ended up, as, as Paul describes, 
as enemies in our minds, hostile toward God. We do not want anything to do with Him. You remember how that felt, don't you? We, we avoided God. We thought He would interfere with our plans, that He was a cosmic killjoy out to make us live uneventful and unhappy lives. We were not open to Him in any degree really whatsoever. We were enemies of God. And as a result, we expressed that enmity in our in evil behavior. And that is really what this text is saying, that the translation, because of your evil behavior, is, is, a, is a poor, poor one. That sounds as though evil behavior is the cause of our alienation and hostility toward God. But it's, it's quite the other way around. It's, it's an inner alienation. It's an estrangement from God, a hostility toward him that causes evil behavior. That's what the Greek text clearly declares here. But now Paul says, we are reconciled to God. Something has happened within us. It occurred when we saw that the death of Jesus was for us, that somehow he had done something to set aside our our estrangement, our separation, our brokenness and hurt, and that if we came to him in faith, he would deliver us. So we came. Something happened then to our inner attitude. We were changed in the way that we thought. We no longer saw God as an enemy or as in a judge, but as a loving father. We recognize that the cross was not a symbol of failure in the life of a religious fanatic, but it was a moment when the great enemies all men face were conquered, when death was overcome and all the evil powers against mankind were, were set against. And thus, our whole life was changed. See, God is in the business of changing lives. That is what this good news is, is about. If, if, our, if our need is our life changed, that's where we start. The process of change begins, as we have seen, with opening the heart to Jesus and receiving him as Lord. But it's a process that's, that is headed for a specific goal, which according to Paul is to present you holy, whole, complete, well-balanced in spirit, soul and body, shalom, in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That is God's goal, and he fully intends to accomplish it. The sign that is happening, that that, that, that is happening, and we, we can't miss this, is if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. It is continuing that the proof of reality. Many, you know, So many people start out in a Christian life and a life with Jesus filled with joy because they found this new sensation, but it, but it does not last. Somewhere along the way, it, it, it fades. And finally, they, they sort of set it all aside and go back to the way they once were. And that is a sign that there was never real faith at the beginning. It, it is a continuance that proves reality. Someone has well said, if your faith fizzles before you finish, it is because it was faulty from the first. That does not mean that faith cannot waver and wobble at times, of course, and it, and it, it does with all of us. Sometimes faith grows dim, but true faith never ceases. It never ends. We never give up the realization that God has changed us. There's a new attitude, a new imparted and uh, life imparted, and that is a sign that we cannot give up being a believer. The second step is the realization that of the part others play in the process of change. Listen to, to Paul's words here. This is the gospel that you heard 
and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission of God, gave to me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. That's chapter 1, verses 23, second part of 23 through the first part of 25. See, one of the remarkable things that believers learn is that others have had a part in bringing the gospel to them. You know, oftentimes that part was played out long before we ever came to Christ. But when we learn of it, how we're moved. Some may wonder what is meant by the statement, the gospel that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. How could that be, we might ask. When Paul wrote this, he had preached in a few cities of the Roman Empire, which was which was but, you know, a small part of the planet in which we live. Then then they didn't they didn't know about North and South America. So how how could that statement be true? Well we find the answer in chapter ten of Paul's letter to the Romans. There he he argues that there must be preachers who must be sent, etc., in in order for people to hear. Nevertheless he asks, Have they not heard? And then he quotes from Psalm 19, their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world, the psalm states. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Nature is the first preacher of the gospel. There's order in the universe. There's clearly intelligence behind it all. Hebrews says, he that comes to God must believe that he is that is what nature tells us, that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So if anyone anywhere responds to the facts that nature presents about the existence of God, of power and glory, and begins to seek him, then God himself assumes the responsibility to bring him to hear of the Redeemer, the Savior of Jesus. And it, it is still true that there is no other name under heaven given among men where, whereby we must be saved. God will bring the seeking soul to Jesus. And the second thing Paul states is that the character of those who truly preach the gospel is that, that they are servants. They, they count it a delight and a joy to be used of God. You know, we people are the, the ultimate reason for all that happens in life, but the truth is we Christians, we believers, are given the high privilege of serving the living God of God using us in our weakness, in our failure, in our folly and fault, faultiness to proclaim this truth to others. The realization that the God of glory is willing to do that that should is willing to do that should create in us a deep sense of gratitude that we can be his servants. See, that's the difference between the false and a true witness. The false witness or the false think God works for them the true delight in the fact that God is using them and that they do not regard it as a some kind of a burden, but the highest honor that could ever be given. But, says Paul, such service involves much pain and sacrifice. I fill up my flesh where it is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What does he mean? That something is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Clearly, he does not mean that something was lacking in Jesus' atoning work, that the suffering of the cross was not sufficient to settle the question and the issue of sin. The fact is, the word afflictions is never used 
in the scripture to describe the death of Jesus. Afflictions are what Jesus went through before the cross from the opposition of the enemy, the devil, and from our Lord's willingness to make himself a servant to others and to minister to human needs. That was when he endured afflictions. But there is nothing lacking in what he did on the cross. Scripture says he is able to save to the uttermost all those who come unto God through him. And John adds, he is the appropriation for our sin, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. There is nothing lacking there. But when we are engaged in fighting against the opposition of the devil, of his angels, when we are opposed by the our, the lust of flesh and, and, and face, the, the subtle lies and deceptions of the world around us, then we find we are engaged in, in combat, and combat is always costly. You see, someone must pay a price in order that others might come to Christ. Have, have you ever asked yourself how many prayers, how many tears, how much heartache and disappointment has someone gone through in order for, for you and I to come to Jesus? You know, I, I never read the scriptures without, you know, a brief thought at least of, of what it cost others for me to have this scripture in my hand, the blood of martyrs, the fears and tears of persecuted people throughout centuries, the sweat and labor of translators and the, the effort of teachers to make it plain and clear. We, sh we should never read the scriptures without remembering that someone has died to make it possible. So when we come to Christ, we are to take up this battle and, and suffer on behalf of others. It, it, it not only benefits others, but it benefits us as well. And that's why Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings on your behalf. It does something for me, he says. It keeps me usable. And, and I'm reminded that, this is, that, that it is out of weakness that I'm made strong. I mean, that's what suffering for others will do for us. It will keep us humble and useful but it also has great effect on others. It shows them that we are deeply concerned. We pray for them. We long for them. We grieve over them. We hurt when they hurt. This is the process by which others come to Christ. And finally, this process requires, as Paul goes on to say, an understanding of truly great mystery. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make them known among the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, not simply Christ, but Christ in you, counseling and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. That is the goal, which in verse 22, he says, God is aiming at. To this end, I labor, struggling with all the energy he so power, powerfully works in me. That's 26 through 29. There's a great mystery. It is the greatest truth taught in the Bible. It is his life in them that is the source of power, of change and deliverance, and the ability to resist temptation. That is how loneliness is met and companionship provided. It's not enough to know that Christ died in order that we might go to heaven. We are also to know, to somehow understand and practice that Christ actually living in us now. That, that, that's got to be the most astounding truth in the Bible. As, the Paul, as Paul declares here, it is a mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to his saints. Think of that. 
Nowhere in the Old Testament will you ever find a single verse that describes the process by which God is going to help his people. There are, there are great promises in the Old Testament, filled throughout the Old Testament, such as Isaiah's word at the end of, of um, chapter 40, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That is true. Old Testament saints understood and believed that promise, and, and they actually experienced it. They waited on the Lord. They were strengthened. They were lifted up, comforted, and helped. All that is clear if you read the Old Testament. But what was never told them was the means by which God would do this. It was not until Jesus came and taught his disciples that we learn at last what, what means God would, would employ. And in Matthew 13, an amazing chapter of parables of Jesus, he, he took, took words from his own lips, quoting one of the Old Testament prophets, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. You see, gradually he sought to give to the disciples this amazing truth through his death and resurrection, and through the coming of the Holy Spirit, they would be indwelt. We would be indwelt by Jesus himself. In the upper room, just before the cross, he, he uttered these words, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home in him. It is the mystery hidden from the foundation of the world, but now made known to the believers See, Paul himself lived this way. That is what he is telling us in this last verse of, of this chapter. To this end, I labor, striving with all the energy that he, Jesus, so powerfully works in me. There is a power at work. And when we understand that we possess the Lord Jesus, that he is in us, we have a totally new source of, of power. We also have a new desire, a new motive. We long to see change take place, and, and we're motivated to take the steps that will bring it into, into reality, to obey, to read, to study, to learn, to grow. We have a new companion along the way. The problem of loneliness is ended because we're never alone when Jesus is present in our life. What a mighty truth that is. It, it is what delivers people. It is more than the fact that Jesus died on a cross. He died that he might live in us. That is the mystery. It is the highest truth of all, a truth that God labors for us to understand and then somehow apply. And when it happens, things begin to change in any person's life. He had to be what he was in order to do what he did. We have said, seeing in Colossians, Jesus had to be both God and man in order to die in our place, to be raised again, to ascend to the heavens, to send the Holy Spirit, to come into our life. He had to be what he was in order to do what he did. Secondly, he had to do what he did in order that we might have what he is. We could never have this new power, this new life, this new source of energy, this new comfort and strength in our life if Jesus had not done what he did. It is on the basis of his death and resurrection that we have what he is. And then thirdly, we, we must have what he is in order to be what he was. That is this, the, this great text, what this great text is saying. God wants to present us holy, without blemish, free from accusation, just as his son was. We are being conformed to the image of his son. He is bringing many sons to glory. We must have 
what he is in order to be what he was. And that is why it is important to understand this great mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is the great mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The world knows nothing about this mystery. We'll never find it mentioned by the media, except by believers. We will never learn about it at great universities of the world. In all secular wisdom and knowledge, there is no recognition of this incomparable source of change in a human life. It is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is why this message is is so powerful, why it's so world-transforming, why it's a revolutionary statement, and why we ought to give ourselves to understanding it more than any other thing in life. In closing, Paul points out three stages of change. First, the, the new birth begins a process which is intended to perfect a spirit, soul, body. To advance that process requires pain and commitment on the part of others on our behalf. And when we come to Christ, we are to, to understate, undertake that same pain and commitment on behalf of others. And then finally, all progress occurs only by coming to understand and to practice the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. That is how to stop any downward slide, any terrible slide of humanity. So in a moment of quietness, as we come to the close, we can say, Lord Jesus, here I am. Come into my heart. Receive me. Begin to change me. And he will respond as he promises to do to those who in true faith invite him into their lives. I want to close today by reading Ephesians chapter 6, 18 and 19. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Amen and go in peace.